But you're not a psycho. You do know some, though, don't you, Doc? Yes, of course. I do some work at Bellevue. Hey, uh, could she have met one of these nuts at your office? I mean, some kind of weirdo she could have turned on and might have followed her? The term we use, Detective Marino, is not weirdo, but a person suffering from emotional dysfunction and a problem of maladaption. And they never come to my office. Are you sure? How about a new patient? I mean, uh, how do you know how nuts they are until you see them? Well, of course, that's possible, but it's hardly likely. Doctor, you're not protecting one of your patients now, are you? Absolutely not. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to the Sword of Cinema podcast. This week, we're going to be taking a look at 1980s Dress to Kill, written and directed by Brian De Palma. Here's a clip. Do you find me attractive? Of course. Would you want to sleep with me? Yes. Then why don't you? Because I love my wife, and it isn't worth jeopardizing my marriage. I shouldn't have been so rude. Thank you for picking up. Mm. master of the macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury, now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. All right, that was a clip from 1980's Dress to Kill. The film is written and directed by Brian De Palma and stars Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, and Nancy Allen. Uh, joining me this week will be Ricky D, of course. And it's just going to be us today. We're just going to be going through this. A couple of Brian De Palma fans talking about one of his, I think, one of his better movies for sure. Certainly during his peak period. One of his peak periods. I would argue there are two. 
Well, yes and no, Patrick. So here's the thing. So we had a bit of a problem trying to record a podcast. It actually got delayed three times, so it was really hard to get a guest. But we actually reviewed this movie way back on the podcast about six or seven years ago. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take clips from that episode, and I'm going to add it to the very end of this episode. And on that episode, we had three guests who helped me review this movie. And that was Simon Howell, Edgar Chaput, and James Marola. And it was a really, really, really good show. So basically, I'm going to cut myself out of the discussion, and I'm going to include bits and pieces of what they think of this movie. It'd be like simulate guests. I won't get to respond to them, but uh, but maybe you'll maybe you'll be able to edit in my my counterpoints. Maybe. And uh, for listeners, uh, we don't spend too much time on preamble, but just to let you know, I've started to re-upload all of the previous episodes of Sorted Cinema. Now, there are a lot. We're at episode 559. So right now, you can find every single episode from number 500 to the current episode on our on our feed, be it iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or Google Play or Spotify or YouTube. Yeah, there's so many good older episodes, um, regardless of the fact that I am not on any of them. But uh, I didn't join this podcast until, ooh, I don't know, maybe it was about two or three years ago. I was a spotty guest occasionally when we were, you were still sound on site, uh, Pop Optic. But um, yeah, it wasn't an, I, I wasn't like a regular guest until, oh, Pop Optic was almost gone, I think. All right, so Dress to Kill, the story of a, well, <laughs> this kind of story of a prostitute, a high-class call girl, I should say, uh, who's on the run from a mysterious woman in sunglasses who killed somebody in an elevator that the prostitute was a witness to, and now she's after the call girl. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go jump back and forth between those two terms, obviously. <laughs> But uh, it's classic Brian De Palma. Starts out with a woman in a shower, ends with a, somebody having a nightmare. We'll get to everything, including that in between. Um, yeah, so I, I, I picked this movie, and I picked it basically because it, it is having its anniversary. It came out in 1980, July 25th, actually. So anniversaries this month, and uh, I thought 40 years. That's I love Brian De Palma movies. Uh, I don't think that... I'm not going to say I love every Brian De Palma movie, but I love his, uh, like I say, I think he has two peak periods, and uh, I really, really enjoy his style. I think he's one of the, you know, he he brought something very fun to movies with a lot of visuals. Dress the Kill is a good example of all the sort of the, the flair that Brian De Palma can bring to a movie. Yeah, so I'm actually a huge fan of this movie. It's not my favorite De Palma film. Like, I don't like it more than, say, Carrie, Blow Up, The Untouchables, Carlito's Way... The Fury, you name it. It sits somewhere in the middle. But there's a lot of reasons why I love this movie, which we'll talk about throughout this podcast. But I just got to start by saying I love the fact that Nancy Allen plays a call girl who plays a stock market. <laughs> there's <just> something <laughs> about that scene that I love. And I love how Dennis Franz plays Detective Marino. And he's like the laziest police officer in the world <laughs> that he tries to get Nancy Allen's character, Liz Blake, to do all the detective work for him. Like, this is a guilty pleasure. It's a really, really good movie. And at times, it's one of those movies where you can easily roll your eyes at how silly things get, right? But here's the thing, Patrick. On the website over at GoombaStomp.com or SortedCinema.com, 
you will find my list of the greatest horror films. I think it's the list of 200 greatest horror films made prior to the year 2000. And this movie is on the list. Yes, I consider it a horror film. Um, I mean, there's so much we need to talk about. Like, It's going to be tricky talking about this, this, this movie because at the end of our episode, we have our five questions. And one of those questions is, what's your favorite scene? And the thing about Dress to Kill, it's a movie that's made up of so many great scenes that we're going to have to like dive deep into talking about these specific scenes, right? Um, but you know, if obsession is Brian De Palma's vertigo and blowout is his rear window, dress to kill is basically psycho in Manhattan. I mean, that's yes. the best way to summarize this film. It's it's his most shameless and loving remix of a Hitchcock movie. He replaces the shower with an elevator, although he still has two shower scenes in the movie, which bookend the movie. The first one opens with a dream sequence. The second one is more of a nightmare. And much like Psycho and even a movie like Scream, the main actress who gets top billing, Angie Dickinson, actually dies early on in the movie in the first act, which was surprising for audiences at the time, even though, you know, technically should not have been a surprise because... The framework, the skeleton of this movie, like the script, was Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. But I yeah. love this movie, but I will say one thing. We're going to talk about all of the references to, to Hitchcock. And I used to be I used to be the kid in college who hated Brian De Palma. Because what happened was, when I was in college, I watched like almost every single Alfred Hitchcock movie in about 30 days. Like, almost every single one of his movies, right? And then my friend was like, oh, have you ever seen Brian De Palma movies? And I was like, this is back in the days when I knew, like maybe the names of five directors, like Spielberg, Scorsese, Hitchcock, you know, whatever, right? And I was like, who's Brian De Palma? He's like, oh, Brian De Palma. And he's, he's, you know, he starts referencing these movies. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go check him out, right? Because I knew Carrie at least. And I was like, that movie's amazing. So I started watching the Palma films. And I'm like, man, this dude does nothing but steal from Alfred Hitchcock. So I'm like this, like, cocky, like, film student. Well, I wasn't really a film student. I wanted to be a film student. But whatever. I was like this kid in college who thought I knew better than Brian De Palma. And I actually hated Brian De Palma. And later in life, I came to really admire his direction and love his movies. But the thing about Dress to Kill is people say he rips off Hitchcock and specifically Psycho. But I've always looked at Dress to Kill as a Jallo film. It's basically like an American version of an Italian Jallo film. And I think he's more influenced by Mario Bava and Dario Argento than he is Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, throughout his career, of course, De Palma's always had the reputation of ripping off Hitchcock. And even when I was in film school, like it was, it was in vogue to hate De Palma, to to call him like a hack or or you know just a, a copycat. I never bought into that because his stuff was to me was so good. Like if you're gonna, and I always saw it as paying homage. And he really liked Hitchcock, and you and it, there's nothing wrong with filmmakers. Uh, you know, attempting to do he, he does his own things, but he's attempting to do things in sort of a Hitchcock style, but he makes it his own style. Um, you're going to know more about the Giallo horror movies than I am, but I am in total agreement with you that Dress to Kill has it, it could be called a horror film. I think it should be called a horror film. It's the closest thing De Palma's made to a horror film because there are there are scenes that work better than many horror movies have as far as like uh, making this your skin crawl kind of thing. And it has a lot of familiar beats that are not, I shouldn't say familiar beats, but it has, it uses a lot of uh, horror tropes and beats, but in really, really clever ways. Um, and it has a few jump scares that work really well. Uh, especially I think the end, I, I, had, I always get lulled in this false sense of security for the end. And, uh, 
that one just it got me like i just jumped out of my chair you mean like the very very end like the last scene the the nightmare sequence yeah yeah it gets me every time it, the, the way that it's cut it must be just something visceral about how it is edited together in the sound but it gets me every single time when the shot of the shoes comes up i do think that the film is more of a thriller than a horror film. So if I were to recommend it to someone, I wouldn't necessarily use the word horror because sometimes people, you know, when you mention the word horror, they're like, oh, I'm not interested because they don't like yeah. gore, blood, whatever. Although the, the elevator sequence it's is somewhat bloody. bloody. I mean, it's somewhat dated in terms of like the effects they use, like, you know, practical effects, the type of blood. It doesn't look like blood. But no. it's still, I mean, we're, we could talk about the elevator sequence later. It's it's one of the highlights of, of the movie. It's 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 one of his best scenes um, in terms of, like, the way he uses his camera. Uh, there's also the 10-minute chase throughout the museum, which is probably the best scene in the movie, which, again, we could talk about later in the podcast. But it's a very stylish movie. Yes. But there's still substance. And the thing about the Palma is a lot of people say he's style over substance, and I disagree. I think... Like a filmmaker like Tarantino, his films are very stylish, but there is substance. Like, we could poke fun at the script and there's a lot of plot holes and things that don't necessarily make sense. But he really does focus on the details. For example, when Angie Dickinson's character walks out of the museum for the first time, um, if you look closely, and I only know this because I watched the documentary, the camera pans past the killer, right? Yes, yep, yep. And I, I saw it this time around. Sometimes I've missed that, but this time I saw it. Right, so when she leaves the man's apartment, she leaves her wedding ring behind yes. by mistake. There is actually a close-up of the wedding ring. So if you're paying attention, you will see the wedding ring. Like, this is what I mean about Brian De Palma, how he, he never misses the small details. But then there's, like, kind of, like, weird things about the actual script and plot. Like, why is it that the detective doesn't actually do any of the police work? Why is it that they get some lady police officer to stalk nancy allen's character but it doesn't really make sense like she's never even like really a character in a movie that speaks a line of dialogue it, it's it's put there it's a red herring it's a red herring it, it's basically to trick the audience totally so yeah. but i mean you know and, and and the thing about the palma too right is not only are not not only do his movies look great but they sound great like in this case with with dress to kill he hired a composer, Pino Danagio, who does a fantastic job with the soundtrack. And the soundtrack really adds to the atmosphere and ambiance of the movie. And I feel like that's the thing that De Palma focuses on most. It's it's the emotional it's the emotion that the viewer feels when watching a movie. And a lot of it comes with the visuals and the sound and so he's one of these filmmakers who i love because he seems to do a better job of telling a story with the visuals as opposed to actual as opposed to the actual script and dialogue yeah he's not a great writer but he knows how to construct a basic screenplay it's just the, all the twists and turns he's not like he's not clever enough of a writer to really get all those things completely i don't know tight uh, and the, the composer, Donaggio, like, worked with him on Carrie as well. I, I, I get a total, like, those early De Palma films all have a similar vibe, which just contributes to them being something unique and special. And you can you can call out a De Palma movie, like, no problem, because it has a, a certain look and a certain sound, like you say. No, he, he, he definitely 
his, like I say, his writing is not there. The dialogue is really hilarious sometimes. Like, probably not meant to be. Sometimes it is meant to be funny. He he does inject a little bit of comedy into his, his things. I do like Dennis Franz in a movie. He plays a detective. Yeah. There, there's one line where he just straight up asks Liz Blake, who are you fucking? Yeah. Am I too crude for you? <laughs> it's, I mean, he's supposed to be kind of funny and over the top, and boy, is he. Like, he's the most over-the-top character in the movie. Whereas, I would say, like, Michael Caine is the complete opposite direction. He is the most uh, understated character in the movie. Yeah, but that is why I like the movie. It's the type of movie, like, the type of mainstream cinema that studios do not make anymore. Like the yeah, film... it used to be mainstream. And it's not just about the gore and the blood and the characters, like the fact that it stars like uh, Nancy Allen playing a call girl. It's it's like the fact that as a director, he takes his time with the pacing. It's beautifully directed. It's in no rush to get from one scene to the next scene. And a lot, a lot of those scenes don't really do much to advance the narrative. Like the museum sequence, you know, it's a 10 minute sequence of Angie Dickinson's character sort of like flirting with a man in the museum and hopefully maybe like she wants a score with the guy, right? Flirting with no dialogue, I should add. This is all completely through body language and this sort of dance of them following each other and backing off. It's, it's you know, advances and retreats, a series of those just but without any dialogue, not a single line is spoken between the two. Right. So imagine a movie in 2020, a Hollywood mainstream film, which features a scene which features no dialogue for 10 minutes about a woman who tries to hook up with a man in a museum. But it doesn't really do much to advance the plot like they could have. They could have just had her meet some dude, like on Grinder or something, whatever app people use these days. <laughs> and, you know, it's over and done with in like two minutes. And and the thing about this movie, it's it's like one of those 70s New York uh, grimy films. Like it's so sleazy and so horny. And and it takes place, you know, in the big city. And, and like they don't make movies like this anymore. It reminds me of Lucio Fucci's like New York Ripper or... Uh, Larry Cohen movies, you know, like the movies he used to make in in the seventies in New York City. So, for me personally, like I love this type of film, the setting and everything. Yeah, the look of it, and we we can get into like the techniques that De Palma uses in order to. It, this is he's not a style over substance guy. I mean, you're absolutely right. There is substance to this movie. There's actually a lot of things to think about, and what happens over the course of the, you know Angie Dickinson's short screen time. Is very interesting, and it's fascinating that it was included. Um, the whole idea of her ha- being stuck in sort of a—I don't know if it's a loveless marriage so much as a passionless marriage—and but she's got a teenage son who they get—they seem to get along great and have a great relationship. Uh, it's her second marriage, so it's not the, the boy's father. Um, and this idea of her wanting to have some passion in her life so much so that she hits on do- you know uh, Michael Caine's doctor um oh my god what is his name again um dr elliot yeah so she she hits on her therapist dr elliot played by michael kane who rejects her but again that's a that's a great little scene of tension where de palma uses that mirror michael kane's mirror to great effect um but yeah then and the, the 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 point about her the guy that she has the affair with the guy she meets in the museum is just sort of a one-night stand kind of thing or one-day stand. It's an afternooner, I guess. Um, having STDs, <laughs> like, which freaks her out and 
puts the audience in a state of tension right before her murder happens, which is a kind of a brilliant. It, it seems so weird. Like I've never seen a movie deliver a bit of information quite like that. That seems like it's going to be so important and, and related to the plot only to have that character murdered minutes later, <laughs> like seconds later, really. Um, as she, you know, after she finds this out, it's just such a bizarre thing. And De Palma always has, you know, it, the, the sexual aspect in his movies is always kind of fascinating to me. It's very strange. I'm not really quite sure what his outlook on everything really is, but I know there's some, there's a viewpoint there and it's a unique one. It doesn't seem to just be trying to play to the masses. You actually seem like you're getting a piece of De Palma's brain, even though it's indecipherable at times. It's, it makes the movie all the more fascinating because I don't quite understand what he was going for with certain things. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, in an interview, he said that he was just reading a story or... Mm-hmm. Okay, so he, he just found that interesting and he was like, I'll throw that at the movie. I think so. I think so. And it works really well. It does. Like I say, it, it heightens the tension right before that moment where you're supposed to... You feel anxiety for her and then boom, she's killed. It works well for a lot of reasons. It works well because, like, Angie Dickinson's so great in this movie that you can you can see her push and pull between her emotions and her desires and her guilt. And, you know, and so when she leaves the apartment, like, she clearly feels great about the fact that she slept with this dude, but she also feels guilty. I mean, she even calls home at one point in time and hangs up on her now husband, right? But then when she leaves and she's in the elevator and she realizes that she forgot her wedding ring, like it speaks volumes about her marriage, like put aside the fact that she just slept with a dude. But also you get the young girl and the mom walk into the elevator and the young girl just like looks up at her. It's one of those scenes where like kids can sort of like detect when there's something wrong with an adult, right? And so like Mm -hmm. the kid doesn't know what she did, but the kid senses that there's something wrong and passes a judgment, and she looks at the kid, and she feels even more guilty. She gets punished for what she thinks might be a sin. Yes, she feels guilty, so therefore it is a, a, a sin in, in her mind, I think. Exactly, and, and then, of course, she gets killed, right? But, but yeah. like, you, you mentioned mirrors and reflections, and, you know, when we think of Brian De Palma and his cinematic fixations, like what he's obsessed with, voyeurism, split personalities, mm-hmm. reflections, doubles. It is all here in Dress to Kill. This might be the most Brian De Palma film of all Brian De Palma films. He uses split screens, within split screens, within split screens. And the, what do you call it? The uh, dipolar shots? Yes, yeah. When basically, for anyone listening who doesn't know, it's when you have the character, the actor in the foreground in focus, and the actors and or an object in the background also in focus. So it's a specific lens that they use. You see this, for example, in the police station. So you get the shot of Peter, and in the background, you see the detective and the psychologist talking in the other room. And the psychologist... The detective and Peter are all in focus, even though two of the men are in a different room in the background and Peter is in the foreground in, in uh, I guess, like the lobby area, right? Brian De Palma is very obsessed with the careful placement of mirrors and windows and screens within screens. Like It'll give a scene multiple planes and show us a different vantage point or different viewpoint of a character. And what's, what's great about this film, and this is the thing about Brian De Palma, I'm not entirely sure why he's still not making movies, considering he's obsessed with technology, right? Like, I mean, the character Peter 
is supposed to be him when he was a teenager, like according to Brian De Palma. Like he wrote the character to be like him when he was a kid, obsessed with technology. I don't understand what the kid's building, by the way. Um, it's like just a giant computer in his bedroom. <laughs> Some kind of computer, yeah. I don't know. And De Palma does he does make movies. They're just not. He he's kind of lost. I think what what he used to have, and I, I think that creative spark may have gone. He but he still occasionally comes out with stuff. It's just not very. Uh, he, uh, some of his, I mean, Femme Fatale was a good movie. Yeah, I mean, but you're going, you're still going back like 20 years, you know. And he does still make things currently. It's just that he's kind of gone. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I, I've tried to watch some of his stuff, and I, I just feel like he's at this point. He might be at a point in his life where he's not Scorsese, and he's not, he's not. Uh, he doesn't still have that anymore. It doesn't matter because he did have. Femme Fatale was 2002. Yeah. And that might have been his last, like, really, really watchable movie. I mean, there were a couple of ones that you could at least say were, like, The Black Dahlia and things like that. But, um, but yeah. But it doesn't matter. The guy, is, the guy had, I would argue, like, a couple of decades worth of great, great movies. So, But but the thing is, like, when I think of the Palma and, like, his obsession and fascination with technology, especially back in the days, like, in the 70s, right? Like, I can imagine him directing a movie like Zodiac, or a TV series like Mindhunter, where it really focuses on the technology that a detective used to rely on in order to... You know what I mean? Like, And so, like, because in this yes. movie, it's not just about the visuals, it's also about the sound. In that police station, Peter uses some kind of whatever... I don't know what he uses exactly. <laughs> he's like... He's like I, I think he bugged the room, I think. But either that or it's like this long-distance microphone. I'm not sure either. And these are the kind of things that you have to sort of roll with in a De Palma movie like uh, that he writes specifically that he writes because <laughs> he doesn't necessarily like sometimes there's just fantastical stuff so he's obsessed with technology but it doesn't mean that he's like David Fincher and that he gets down into the nitty-gritty of it he's romanticizes the tech technology he's a, and that that means he might gloss over a few things that that technophiles might want to know well I, I thought it was the same device that John Travolta uses in the movie Blow Up it could be just a long, a long range microphone um, that you know has a very narrow uh, window of you know what it can record. I know there's a couple of things. This isn't the conversation though, where they're like, going to like get bogged down in, in the actual like industrial aspect of this thing. Uh, like I say, De Palma's he's more romantic when it comes to technology. I feel like he and he uses technology in very what I would call romantic ways and not necessarily practical ways. It's like spying on you know two people talking about the murder of your mother, or later on when he sets up the the time lapse camera outside the door, spying. It's like voyeurism, like you're talking about. He he loves he loves that aspect of it, the sort of dashing uses for technology that he can find. But but what's great about the Palma is whenever he uses a split screen or a specific lens, it's never a gimmick. It's actually used in service of the story and moving the story forward and giving us a different point of view and different vantage point of something that happens, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about Brian De Palma's films. So this movie doesn't have as much split screen as, say, a movie like Sisters. But when we do get the split screen, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it only happens about twice in a movie. It's to Angie Dickinson remembering it, it happened i think three times i know she remembers twice things that happened um uh, she remembers dropping her glove and she remembers um her wedding ring i believe and uh, and then it also happens during the scene when both michael kane and um um 
or the, the character, Dr. Elliot, and Liz are watching the television at the same right, time. Right, and that's when she plays the stock market. So actually, that is technically the only split-screen sequence he uses in the film. Because when Angie Dickinson's character has Those flashbacks, it's, yeah, yeah. it's like the scene sort of like uh, fades in or burns into the frame. But it's not yes. technically a split-screen. But there is this one great shot where Peter sets up his device outside of the doctor's office, right? And there's one specific shot where Brian De Palma splits the screen in half. So on the right side, it's a close-up of the bicycle, this mailbox in the back of the bicycle, which has the object which takes a snapshot of whoever walks into the doctor's office, right? And on the left side of the screen, we see Peter walk away. But it's not a split-screen sequence. It's just the framing of the shot. The mailbox takes half of the right screen that it looks like a split screen sequence yeah and there were there i remember looking at that shot and trying to determine if it really was a split screen that was combined in a, in a way to make it look like one shot and i'm still not completely sure about that <laughs> like it might be an actual split screen because sometimes something about the where the box is doesn't it, the background doesn't line up properly to me uh, and so I thought, like, did they split this? Did and, and he's just trying to combine it, make it look like it is. It's just a you know one one really cool shot. Either way, I love the way that stuff looks. I am such a sucker for shots like that uh, because they're just visually so much more interesting than a lot of the standard fare that we get. And that's why I really value Brian De Palma. And like you said, these shots aren't for no reason. He's not just showing off camera moves. They all service the story. And regardless of whether or not Brian De Palma can write a fantastic script. You know, maybe his dialogue's not the best. Maybe his plot points aren't exactly the tightest. But his camel work is like it does tell the story. His visuals are impeccable, as far as I'm concerned, for the in a movie like this, where every shot does tell you something. It tells you a bit a bit of information. He's so good at that at conveying information through visuals that um, it doesn't matter to me if the scripts are a little on the nose sometimes. You know. I, I know, like, people had a problem with Nancy Allen's character. Like, you just said that she's fawning when she's playing the stock market. I think she's great in this movie, by the way. And I, I can't believe she got a Razzie award for this because screw that. Like, I'm sorry. Whoever was giving that out was a hater. Nancy Allen's great in this movie. At the start of the show, I said I'm going to play some clips of the podcast we recorded, like, seven years ago. I'm not going to include myself because I am here talking right now and reviewing the movie. But on that episode, I defended Nancy Allen's character. I don't think... I don't think there's anything wrong with her performance. I think it's the performance they wanted for from her, and that's the character she plays. I think people just expected her to act differently because she's a call girl. And in their heads, like, a call girl should act like, I don't know, she shouldn't be playing the stock market. She shouldn't be so, like, happy and smiley. Like She's got a great apartment. She's, like, obviously doing well with her life. I mean... <laughs> Why would she be, you know, drugged out and depressed necessarily? Like, I, you're right. I think people expect a certain type. And I think she's there to add a certain, a little bit of pluck that uh, that the movie needs. Because, you know, like you said, you've got the laziest police detective of all time. So she's the plucky one here, even more so than Peter is, I think. And she's kind of the hero of the story. And I don't, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way she played her at all. I love that character. I, I think she's a great character, and I love her interactions with Peter. I think they were very smart to keep that non-sexual. And, you know, you can read in a little bit of hint of flirting here and there, but it's pretty, pretty low-key. Well, and what I love about her character is, okay, first of all, the thing is, she's not a hooker. Like, she doesn't have a pimp. She doesn't stand on the street corner 
and try to pick up clients. She works for an escort agency, a yes. high-end escort agency where she can get about $1,000 from one client way back in the 70s, right? So she just happens to work a job. You know, it, it makes sense for her. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not going to judge her or her character or judge escorts. Now, what I love about her character, too, is that she does play an escort in which she uses sex, you know, to, to make money, right? But when you compare her to Angie Dickinson's character, who is like a housewife, who has a job and a career and a husband and a kid, who's settled down, but she's the one who's trying to pick up men in the museum. She's the one who's horny as hell and trying to seduce her therapist. In, in, in most movies, it'll be like the complete opposite. It would be the call girl who'd be in that role, right? They would switch things, right? With Brian De Palma, he makes the housewife... The sexual one. Right. And yeah, and the and the, the call girl, he, he barely sexualizes her at all like, until the very end, of course, when she's trying to use her trade to sort of lure Michael Caine uh, or sort of like provide a smokescreen uh, to Michael Caine as he tries to prove that, that the killer came from his office. Little does she know, of course, that he is the killer. Um, we haven't talked a lot about Michael Caine in this. Oh, well, why? Because he phoned in his performance? <laughs> <laughs> He's uh he's okay. Like the thing about Michael Caine, it's not his greatest performance. He's not great in this movie, let's be honest. But the th- it kind of works because you want the character to be somewhat boring in order to try and maybe trick the audience into them not knowing that he's also the killer even though I think it's pretty obvious. There's very few choices as to who the killer could be. When you set up a mystery like that, the audience expects that it's somebody that we've met. And we haven't met enough people. <laughs> I mean, it seems very obvious that Michael Caine's acting very... He seems very prominent, and yet he has nothing to do with anything. So, like, he doesn't actually help the investigation. He doesn't help anything. And yet we keep cutting back to him. I think everybody can guess that he is the killer. Uh, it's just the, the particulars maybe we don't know. But, um, you know, that people don't know necessarily that it's going to end up as a uh, an homage to Psycho. But... Uh, yeah, you're right. He's very low-key in this. Very understated performance. Um, I'm not sure what his direction was, if, it, if he was being told to be that soft-spoken and kind of monotonous. And it could be it could be a character choice that this character is fighting for control. And sometimes when somebody is you know, trying to control themselves or calm themselves down, they will take on an, uh, sort of an, uh, an unnatural calmness to their speaking voice. As if they're trying to convince themselves that they are in control. And it's very possible that Michael Caine chose that, you know, because his character is trying to use logic in every situation where, where you know, his other self is trying to take over. Like when Angie Dickinson hits on him and he insists that he's married and he loves his wife. And he says it in such matter-of-fact terms that it almost feels like he's trying to out-logic his, his split personality. Uh, but the mirror... The mirror shot tells you everything. Like he, he, his glance at himself in the mirror lets you know that he's not really in control. But that's the thing about Brian De Palma using his visuals to tell a story and tell more about the character and the actual dialogue. Now, for someone who might not necessarily look at movies the way we do, who doesn't notice things like camera shots and soft focus and direction and split screens, they might not catch on to the fact that he's a killer. Like, I'm not entirely sure. The first time I watched a movie, I watched it when I was like younger. And I knew right away he was the killer. The only thing De Palma could have done was make it a character that we hadn't really seen much of. Or it would have had to have been a ridiculous... I mean, you couldn't make it the police chief or anything like that. Or, or even, you know, the son. Um, I think maybe he was going to try... Uh, he couldn't really do that because the son ends up saving her on the train. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. There just were very few choices. And to make it a complete stranger at that point would have been unsatisfying. It had to be somebody that we met already because you set it up as a mystery. And uh, yeah, so his explanation is his explanation. I guess say De Palma's not exactly the greatest writer. He never has been. But it works in the, in this, as a structure, a screenplay structure. And um, because he knows how to do visuals, he's able to sell the whole thing. So the thing about Brian De Palma is I think it would help if he did a bit of research. Like, for example, I was watching a documentary and they're interviewing Brian De Palma and he starts talking about the opening scene and what it was supposed to be because he watched this Phil Donahue episode in which Phil Donahue uh, interviewed a transsexual. And so he was like, oh, my God, I got to make a movie where I use a transsexual. Right. And so he starts coming up with the idea for Dress to Kill. And he wanted to open up the movie with the main character, Bobby, shaving and and then taking the razor to cut off his penis. Because mm -hmm. clearly Brian De Palma does not know anything about men who try to get sex changes because <laughs> they don't just like cut off their penis. Right. <laughs> no. But that's what's no. so problematic about the movie. Like that. Like it's funny because when the movie got released, a lot of people were upset because of the way it portrayed the two female characters played by Nancy Allen and Angie Dickinson. But I was like, okay, but shouldn't you be more upset about how it tries to treat transsexuals as serial killers? Because back in the 70s and 80s, there were so many movies being made where the killer was always either a transvestite or a transsexual. And now I get the whole Hitchcock influence, right? Yeah. It makes no sense, though. This movie is somewhat different than that because it does have a scene where there is a, a transsexual being interviewed on television and Nancy Allen and uh, Dr. You know, and Michael Caine are both watching that, uh, both obviously with varied interests. But Michael Caine's character, is, it's, it's an interesting character. I always try to like tell people that he's, he's a split personality, for one. It's, he's not just a, a transsexual. He is a split personality where one of the, his personalities – is a, a woman and the other one is fighting for some sort of ma male uh, to stay male. And so it's a little different than what a transsexual would actually be. He is. And so that's where kind of the psycho influence comes in because Norm Bates wasn't his mom. He was split personality. Sometimes he was Norm Bates and sometimes he was his mom or what he thought his mom was obviously. Well, um, and I give Brian De Palma credit for including the, televised interview with uh the transsexual and phil donahue and then also he basically does the exact same thing that hitchcock did in psycho where he includes the scene at the end which explains the psychological motivations of bobby and the doctor and why he turned into a murderer you know mm -hmm. it's all good i'm just saying that brian the palma like it's so weird like again when it comes to it's not even a small detail it just it, it it has more to do with the writing and the characters and doing a bit of research like when i was listening to that interview and i was like wait a minute this dude wanted to open up the movie with the dude cutting off his penis with a razor blade <laughs> i was like what <laughs> that would have been the worst opening of any movie ever by the way uh i think it would have sent audiences running for the doors nobody wants to see somebody do that <laughs> what a horrific thing um i also like a lot of people say it's racist which i think is like overblown yes there is a gang of kids I was, well not even kids they're like young adults and they're, yes they are yeah. black and yes they're in a metro system and yes they harass her um but like okay i mean it was the this movie was released when exactly it was 1980 and new york in 1980 was a crime ridden 
you know, when, across the say crime was a big problem. Obviously, Death Wish came out of that era and several other New York movies. And every headline on a newspaper was about New York gangs. Uh, I mean, yeah. there was a black police officer, you know, yeah. who appears yep. like two seconds later. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he doesn't, he doesn't, and he doesn't believe that crazy white lady either. <laughs> By the way, that train sequence is a great example, I think, of, of what I was talking about, like making your skin crawl. The way he uses his camera and how the, the subtlety. De Palma, God, I wish he would have made a straight-up horror movie because some of the subtlety of how he uh, reveals the killer in that scene, I just love It's so creepy with uh, Michael Caine's character looking through the window. Like, just there sometimes and not there sometimes. And um, the way he doesn't draw attention to it, the way you have to be looking around the edge of the frame and you'll be like, oh, my God. Uh, he doesn't just zoom in on it and there isn't a, a little musical cue that signifies that the killer is here. You just have to be paying attention. And it's uh, it's a movie, because of that kind of style, I really find it hard to take my eyes away from this movie. A lot of times when I've seen movies, lots of times, I can, you know, really quickly glance down at my phone for some reason or, what, you know, I might get up to go get a, you know, a snack or a glass of water while the movie's still playing because I kind of know the movie in my head. But with the Palma, I'm glued to my seat. Like in a movie like this, I just can't stop watching because there's so many little things hidden in, in every single little corner um, and you kind of need to be paying attention. And you, like I say, that train sequence is a great example of how he just subtly makes the presence of the killer known without ever really drawing attention to it. The funny thing, too, is that I'm not entirely sure why women were upset. From my point of view, the women in the movie are portrayed as really good people. Like, yeah, maybe so the housewife is a little bit sexually frustrated, but that, that doesn't say that that doesn't mean she's a bad person. Like, Nancy no, Allen's I, character is sort of like a hero. She plays... I would argue she's the hero. She is the hero. She's the, she's the, the yeah. detective. She is the hero. And, and like... If anything, like all the men in the movie come across as problematic. Like the cab driver is like a, a pervert and he, he yep. adjusts the mirror so he can watch him have sex. They got like a guy that's a peeping Tom. Yeah, I mean, if you look at her husband, her her loveless husband who barely talks to her. Then you got the guy that she has an affair with who never says the word, a word, and is just kind of sleazy. Uh, you've got the detective who's just an asshole. <laughs> Funny, but an asshole. I mean, it goes on like there. And then you've got Michael Caine, who's uh, clearly at war with himself, like and is committing murders out there. Yeah, it's just so strange, because I think if the roles were reversed and it was a man having an affair, nobody would bat an eye. But because it's a movie where a woman is having an affair, like it's a big, huge problem. I mean, like in 1980, it was. I don't know if today that's such a problem. Um and I don't think that there's, like I say, the the movie certainly does not judge her. At no point do you think that 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 Brian De Palma is saying she got what she deserved. It's seen as a tragedy, and it's played out as a tragedy, meaning she didn't deserve this. But in her own mind, she was guilty. And in movies, sometimes that means something. In stories in general, sometimes if somebody believes they deserve something, they get it, even if the storyteller doesn't believe they deserved it. Uh, before we cut to break, I just want to quickly say that the first time I watched the movie, what really blew me away was the fact that they actually killed the main actress about 30 minutes into the movie. And it's weird because I had already seen Psycho, but in my head, for some reason, I always forget about the fact that Janet Lee dies so early on in Psycho. 
Yeah, I think it still works as a fairly shocking moment. And there are a lot of people, especially nowadays, that haven't seen Psycho. So um, I think this movie would, would work like gangbusters on them. That scene would shock them for sure, because it still doesn't happen in movies very often. Um, all right. So with that, we are going to cut away for a break. Um, when we come back, we'll have uh, we'll ask a few more questions about Dress to Kill. But until then, here's another clip. Men and women, too, think they're born in the wrong body. They're called transsexuals. And all they want to do is have their sex changed. Well, if you're a man that wants to become a woman, you take female hormones. What do they do? Well, your skin softens, you grow breasts, and you don't get hard anymore. Great. Sure you want to know about this? Yeah, yeah, it's giving me some uh, wonderful new ideas for a science project. I mean, instead of building a computer, I could build a woman out of me. Great idea. In that case, I'll give you all the details. The next step is surgery. A, um, let me see if I can remember the exact word that Levy told me. Oh, yeah, a penectomy. Mm. What's that? Oh, you know, they take your penis and slice it down the middle. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I thought it was. Then, um, castration plastic reconstruction and the formation of an artificial vagina, a vaginoplasty to those in the know. And I, uh, I thought Ellie just put on a dress. Oh, he did, and a wig too. But you see, that's no good in bed when you gotta take everything off. What's gonna happen to him now? Well, first he has to recover from the gun wound, and then if he's ever sane enough to get out of Bellevue, they'll try him. And guess who's the star witness? You. Right. Something I'm really looking forward to. Well, I think I'm gonna stick with my computer. That sounds like a very good idea. All right, that was another clip from Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. All right, so we've reached the portion of the podcast where we're going to ask a few questions about this movie. We're going to break it down just a little bit more. Uh, we always like to start positive, though. So, Rick, what was your favorite scene from Dress to Kill? Okay, so the thing is I don't want to answer the question because I have two, and I'm not sure what you're going to pick. So, <laughs> you know what, I'm just going to answer the question, and then if you pick the exact same scene as me, I'll just go with my second pick. So, uh-huh. m- my favorite scene. Not the best scene. Because there is a difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, So my favorite scene is a murder scene. It's a scene in the elevator. Uh, mostly because I'm a huge fan of horror films and Jallo films. And to me, that whole entire sequence plays out like a Dario or gent- a gentle masterpiece. I love the fact that, once again, the main actress who gets top billing is killed off. But I also just love the way he shoots the scene. The camera shots, using the mirrors... Uh, there's no split screen sequence, but because of the reflection of the mirror and the reflection of uh, of, of uh, Angie Dickinson in the in in the sunglasses that what's her face wears or the killer wears, mm-hmm. the way he would split the screen and show three actresses within the same frame by using these mirrors and reflections, and the way it's played out, the way he's patient, uh, it's also bloody. It's just a really, really great way to film a murder sequence. And, of course, you got the music and the orchestration of the camera angles, the makeup effects, the multiple point of views, the shocking bloody violence. It's fantastic. But what I love about it, too, 
is you have like these three characters who are very similar, right? So we talk about body doubles and and split personalities and all of the things that Brian De Palma is fascinated and obsessed with when it comes to filmmaking. Because he has these three blonde women who sort of look similar in some ways, or you know what I mean? Like there he has them all with it's and I think it's the only time that all three of them are in the same scene, also, right? And yes. he, he just does this amazing job of cramming these three actresses into the frame who all look similar. And at the same time, it totally pivots the movie. And that is when the movie really takes off. That is when it really grabs the attention of the viewer. And yeah, like I just love the idea of how the elevator murder presents a meeting of doppelgangers. Has the three women who look similar to Killer Liz and Kate all meet at the same place at the same time, obviously. Yeah, yep, and the the tension for that he gets from that scene where with like the razor blade, you know, where she's reaching, Andy Dickinson's reaching out to Nancy Allen, and Nancy Allen is about to reach back in until she sees the mirror up in the the corner of the elevator, and there is Michael Caine with the razor blade. Um, that razor blade, which gets so much attention, and again, I believe it's supposed to, you know, obviously it's supposed to represent sort of masculinity. Um, because even her Andy Dickinson's husband is seen shaving in the beginning. There's clearly some sort of draw out that. But uh, yeah, that 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 whole scene, that all the tension there. Nancy Allen like pulling her arm back because she's not doesn't want to get sliced, knowing realizing that there's somebody else in that elevator. It is. It's a, an absolutely. It, it's it's his psycho shower scene. I mean, it may not be as. You uh, mean it didn't hit pop culture as much as the psycho shower scene did. But it's a fantastic killing, and, and it's one where he clearly thought out every angle. And, you know, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people will place the camera, and they'll try to get as many shots as they can, as many different angles of a, of a murder they can, and they'll edit in the way that they seems that they think seems most appealing. Um, but this is, this is thought out. It's also the buildup, right? Like, they're never going to make an entire documentary about this specific scene. Like, they made a documentary no. specifically about the shower scene of Psycho, like an hour and a half movie about a 30-second scene, right? Yeah. But I love the buildup. Like, there is a scene when she's walking out of the apartment that you see the killer in the background if you're paying close attention. I like the idea that she forgets her wedding ring, so she has to go back up. I like the idea of including the child who looks at her and is all judgmental. I also like the fact that, once again, when we talk about how all the men in this movie are actually the weak characters, you get the man who runs away while Nancy Allen has yeah. to stay and try to save <laughs> the person that's getting murdered. So yeah. there is so many reasons why I love the scene. So I think it's my favorite scene. I'm not entirely sure if it's the best scene. Yeah, I mean, best is, of course, it's going to be somewhat subjective. Um, I am going to pick, I think, what your other scene was going to be is the museum scene, the the flirting scene. The, the I love wordless visual movie construction. I, I think to me, I mean, I don't think that there, obviously there's value to sound in cinema and there's value to dialogue. But I love it when a director can take something... Um, uh, something like that and stretch it out into sort of a virtuoso scene that tells its own little story without ever speaking a word. Um, and sound is very important in that scene. You know, the music is important and the clip clop of her shoes. Are, I, I think that's all adds to the, the ambiance of the scene. I think that's important, but um, the way that that sort of dance is done, it's just a 10 minute dance sequence. Um, it's just super, superbly choreographed and shot. And uh, it makes you feel like you're kind of, 
like I say, out there just part of the motion. You sort of get swept up in it. I don't want to take away from Pino Donaggio's score because it's amazing, but you can press mute and watch the scene, and it's still incredible. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things where a guy, where you, that's where you realize it's the power of movies over over almost any other medium, where they can they can do these things, um, they can make you feel a certain way and tell a certain story just with a director who's confident and knows where to place a camera and why he's placing a camera there. Uh, and can convey, can convey so much information. I love stuff like that. So for me that it goes on for 10 minutes, it doesn't bore me at all. I, I found it fascinating. Like I say, there's all sorts of little mini relationship things there where he sits down with her. And so he's the aggressor at first. And then she takes off her glove and shows him the wedding ring. Although I think she meant to, she didn't mean to do that. That was an accident. You know, she does cross her legs at one point. So that kind of was, uh, you know, uh, putting up the fences, I guess you could say. And the wedding ring, I think, was an accident. He he takes off as soon as he sees it, and then she's like, "Oh no, I scared him away." So then she has to become the aggressor. <clears throat> but then he sort of rebuffs her for being aggressive. So then she walks away, and then he becomes the the chaser again. Yeah, it's just a it's a it's a great little like I'm leading, you leading kind of thing. Also, all of the extras that we see in the scene, they all sort of. Um, like their relationship and their mannerisms and what they are doing sort of reflect what she's feeling and thinking about. Like it could be the young couple and you have the young guy who's grabbing the ass of his girlfriend, or you can have the married couple with their kids. Even the paintings themselves somehow represent what she's feeling. Like it's really, really clever and yet odd. Like the gorilla, for example, is it's a really odd painting, but it somehow works within that scene. For, like, I don't know. I believe it's supposed to represent, like, I think it's even named something like a very masculine name. Like, it's supposed to be some sort of sexual thing. I never noticed or I never thought about the idea that, that the, those people that are in there are what she's thinking about. And you're right. I never thought about, like, okay, she's she's thinking about she, she wants some passion in her life. And she sees the guy grab his girlfriend's ass. And that represents that. But she also uh, is committed to her family life, clearly. And then she sees the little family with the kids running around and, you know, them, them going after the kids. I never really thought about that as contributing to her character. But you're absolutely right. Although this movie takes place in the 80s and although some of the direction is a bit suspect in terms of, like, you know, the way the characters react, for example, like there's one scene where she almost bumps into the man and he's about to speak, but he doesn't actually speak. And it, it just it's weird. You know what I mean? Like when you when you watch it, it's very stylized. Yeah, exactly. There seems like there's some sort of like miscommunication, misdirection between the, the director and the actor in that case. It comes across as like an opera. Like you mentioned a dance and that's the best way to 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 describe the actual scene. It feels like a 10 minute dance sequence. Yeah, it's it's incredibly stylized and in no way meant to represent. I don't think it's supposed to, to be a depiction of a realistic flirtation between two people. That's why, I mean, in real life, people would probably speak in those scenarios. Like, and he doesn't even speak to her in the cab. He just starts making out with her. Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess it could happen. I, I, I find it kind of funny, like, that even when they get into the cab, he doesn't say anything. And, like... And then the whole thing, they never speak the entire time. Like, you'd never hear that guy's voice. Okay, the cab sequence was weird. Like, like if I wrote the scene, I would end it where they end up in a washroom and, you know, they kind of do their thing in public. Like, <clears throat> But I think that, um, I think for her to jump into a cab and go to his apartment is like a huge risk because he could be insane. He could be a killer. And it's funny because she actually does die, but not because of him. But you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a huge yeah. risk, but... 
yep, for, for someone who's who's conflicted about her feelings, who's still married and has a teenage boy, I think it has to be something that happens at the moment, like in the heat of the moment, not like, I mean, they, they do kind of like get it on in the cab ride, but I don't know. But anyways, this is not a sex show. <laughs> that, that brings us right into what our next question would be. If there was one thing that you could change about Trust to Kill, what, what would it be? Man, I did not think about this. Um, oh boy, this one's tough. I'm going to let you go first. Okay, so for me, as you know, I usually tend to change like characters. <laughs> it's just the writer part of me that wants to make things just a little more... Uh, oh, I don't know, perfect or something like that. Um, so I really, I've always been confused by, and I, we were talking about this slightly before the podcast, I mentioned this. I'm always confused by the female cop in this that is tailing, that is tailing uh, Liz, who is the the prostitute player, the call girl played by Nancy Allen. Um, I don't get the purpose of her. I know she's a red herring, but it's not a very good one because you're not even really aware of her doing this the entire time. It would have been better if she had been set up to have been following her. Like if we knew about this ahead of time instead of learning it afterwards. And in the end, you're just like, okay, it made no difference that that he tells her this afterwards. Like, oh yeah, by the way, I've had this lady cop following you who looks, you know, incredibly like the killer. Um, but it doesn't really matter. That doesn't. That information doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything about the rest of the movie. You're not going back and thinking, well, which times was it the cop and which times was it the real killer? Because the real killer was stalking her too. So they were both stalking her. Um, so it doesn't really do anything. I wish it would have been a setup where if you're going to tell her, say, hey, I'll have one of my best detectives following you. And here she is. And so later on, like... Um, Liz could see somebody following her and think that's the detective and that could have actually led it into like her uh, you know making a mistake and it really being the killer or vice versa right thinking someone's the killer and then it's being the detective you could do a lot of things with that but as it was that little bit, bit of information to me doesn't help anything and it's it takes up a, an incredibly short amount of this movie's time so it doesn't really matter but it's one of those things when you get to the ending I'm always like what Every time I watch this movie, I'm always conf I always forget about it that it's even happening, and then I'm always like, "Why did he do that?" <laughs> you know, I I don't know. I was so confused because it didn't make any sense because they have this scene where, like you said, she is getting chased or followed by the actual killer, but at the same time we have the police officer. But then it's Peter that saves the day, and then where does the police officer? coming to like i don't know she just... lost her at some point like they were both following her and she ended up thinking the police officer was the killer and so she loses her going into the subway i think i think it's actually it's not michael kane that the cabbie gets i think it's actually the cop um, but but it's and... weird because peter actually follows the killer like because yeah the so, real killer so there's no reason to actually have mention of this quote-unquote cop who dresses exactly like the killer looks yeah. exactly like the killer like right. how does the cop know what the killer looks like and why would the cop dress like it, the killer it was a total coincidence but nancy allen did describe a woman in a trench coat and sunglasses maybe if you were to cop like a you wouldn't send a blonde woman in a trench coat and sunglasses like <laughs> don't do that yeah it doesn't make any sense to me it, it's just never uh it, it it could have been handled a little bit better if he wanted to have that sort of doppelganger thing thrown in like you say the body doubles um 
it could have been handled a little bit differently. But luckily, again, it takes up such a small amount of time that it doesn't really you don't you start even start thinking about it till till after you've seen the movie but it it, it does ring a false note in the, in the end i i know what i'm gonna change okay so here's okay. the thing i do like the fact that the movie is bookended by the two shower scenes because like i said the opening scene is more like a dream sequence it's an erotic dream the ending is more like a nightmare but prior to the end prior to the last scene we have a scene in which the killer is in a mental institution and mm-hmm. it's very weird. It, it feels like it's a scene that was lifted out of Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. So the killer is in a room with one nurse, 200 inmates, manages to kill the nurse while everyone stands around and applauds, and mm-hmm. then escapes, and then later ends up in the scene. Like, and I, like the, so the, the question, the thing here is, the last scene is clearly a nightmare, right? But yes. The scene prior in which Bobby is in the mental institution is that part of her nightmare? Okay, I was thinking about that because I've gone back and forth on that before. I really, really believe that's part of her nightmare. The way it's shot and the way it's staged and the way the nurse is dressed and everything about it, it says like she dresses like Halloween sexy nurse. Almost. I know, but that's uh, what I'm um, saying, right? But like that's that's what I want to know. Like I. I because Brian De Palma, like again, this is the man who wanted to open the movie with a dude <laughs> chopping off his penis with a razor blade. It works if it's somebody's dream of that, though, and and they, yeah, if it's Nancy Allen's like nightmarish version of uh, of a mental institution, which you know that would be a night that's a stylized nightmarish version of one for sure. Not there's no resemblance to reality. Um, then it works, but I, it's not very clear that that isn't part of her 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 thing. You're right. But at the end, there's, I don't know, I, I feel like he couldn't have escaped that quickly. I think logically, I don't think he gets out that quickly. Because remember, she's still staying with Peter. Like, If you only have one nurse working, right, and you have 200 inmates, like, clearly they're going to get out. Yeah, yeah. That's why I think that has to be the dream. It has to be part of the dream. And that is, by the way, one of the longest dream sequences to end a movie that I've ever seen. Like, it totally throws you off. It completely throws you off because of how long it actually is. Most dream sequences just don't last that long. Now, do you take away from that scene that he has indeed escaped and that they're just sort of, and Nancy Allen is now having nightmares because she knows he's on the loose? I have no idea. It could be either or. It could be that he did escape, but if so, that's a really bad scene. It could be part of her nightmare, but then it feels like her nightmare is composed of two scenes, not one scene. Like, usually a nightmare or a dream sequence, it's one scene. Yeah, that's why I say this. It's the strangest dream sequence because it feels uh, it's so long and it actually it makes you think that it's part of the movie. I do believe that it is all encompassing her dream that Michael Caine has not escaped from the institution, um, that she's just having a night. She's just finally it's finally catching up to her, everything that she had been through, I think, because she hadn't really been super scared throughout most of this. She'd been kind of like I say, the plucky, the plucky hero. And uh, and I think it, it catches up to her then, and she's finally doing hers. In terms of how I, I could change it, it could be something as simple as she is going to the shower, and there's a news report and or a radio broadcast in the background that announces that so-and-so escaped from the mental institution, and then we have the scene in which she gets attacked, right? Mm-hmm. Less confusing. It could... <laughs> It's just less confusing. Yeah, no, I agree that it's confusing. It makes you wonder. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. 
for me. But um, I think you could have had at least one thing afterwards saying, okay, all of it was a dream. You know, like uh, like the the news, you know, the newspaper shows that you know guy is convicted of of murder or whatever like that. Um, thus showing that he still is in there or something that he's not he's not actually he hasn't actually escaped. Um, <laughs> either way, it's it's just one of many confusing things in sometimes Brian De Palma movies. You kind of you kind of got to roll with that. Uh, all right, so who is the MVP of Dress to Kill? Brian De Palma. If you gave the screenplay to a different director, this would be a completely different movie. And I don't know if that would be better or worse, but it would not be what Dress to Kill is. And, you know, it was because of Brian De Palma that he got Dinaggio to work on the movie. You know, we didn't even mention the cinematographer. Still trying to figure out how to pronounce his... Yeah, and it's still trying to figure out how to pronounce the name, but Ralph Bodie, you know, he's a legend. You know, he specifically wanted this dude, and... You know, we can credit the, the cinematographer for a lot of things from the lighting to the using soft focus, using different lenses. But at the end of the day, it was Brian De Palma who wanted those specific shots and who wanted split screen sequences. Yeah. Anyhow, it's a boring answer. Usually we pick the director. I'm going to have to pick the director once again. Well, I feel like, I mean, this is one of those cases like in the quick of the dead. You know, it's a Sam Raimi movie and this is a Brian De Palma movie. Like everybody else is in it, but. Brian De Palma is one of those forces of nature in in cinema that he usually is the MVP of his movies if they work. There's a couple of cases, there's a couple of you know possible exceptions to that, but um, you know where he does get where there are people who give off performances and things like that. But uh, I, he usually is, especially and especially during this time period, I feel like he is the he's the guy that's making this movie. It's a, it's, it's a Brian De Palma movie more than anything else. So it's hard to get, go with that, but I think, uh, and I'm going to at least to like give a shout out to Nancy Allen. And you did, and I'm going to as well. I think she makes the movie work. Um, she holds it together quite a bit. Like she keeps that kind of spirit alive, that sort of adventurous spirit that helps in a movie like this. It keeps it from getting bogged down in kind of the dreariness of the subject matter. Um, she's, she maintains a positive spin and she keeps a, keeps a lot of energy in it. Even though De Palma's cam work is doing that for you as well. Um, I think Nancy Allen contributes a lot. She's not the MVP, but she would be my runner up, I guess, <clears throat> despite her receiving all this critical backlash for some bizarre reason. Um, all right. So does this movie pass the Howard Hawks test? A, a good or a great movie should have at least three great scenes and no bad ones. Rick, does the dress to kill pass? So here's the thing. I actually think it does. And we mentioned a few things that we might change if we could, but it has more to do with the actual screenplay for the movie, for what he's trying to do for this type of movie, for this like American Jallo film released and made in like 1980 which is supposed to be sleazy and supposed to be a bunch of different things, right? It's supposed to have like a, a touch of dark humor. I think every scene works within the frame of this movie. Like, I don't think that there's a scene that's bad, that that that, that hurts the movie. An, an actual scene, like an entire sequence, I don't think so. Like, we can, we can nitpick about the performances or the dialogue or specific things within the scene. But an entire scene, a bad scene... I don't think so. I don't think there's a bad scene in this movie. And I do think there's at least three, if not four, fantastic scenes. You know, we we mentioned our two favorite scenes. And once again, I just have to remind everyone about the police station, which I think is 
up there as one of the three best scenes. Some people would even argue the best scene of the movie. So right there, there's three scenes between the police station, the murder sequence, and the museum. Three great scenes. But I don't think there's a bad scene in the movie. Like it, it fits within the movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't count a bad scene. My only problem really is with that, that, uh, that policewoman. That's just simply a, a, a plot thing, a structural thing. It's not a, it's not a scene. I don't think the ending explanation scene is bad. I just think that it was a bit of unnecessary information thrown in there. But yeah, I would even count the train sequence as another great scene. I think that is where she's trying to escape. I think all of that with the, you know, starting even with the, the cab driver and going all the way down into the subway. Um, I think that's a fantastic scene, the subway scene, when she's just looking at the cop and the cop's looking at her like she's crazy. And they just, <laughs> every once in a while he looks away, but then when she looks back at him, he's still staring at her like she's crazy. Um, yeah, I love I love that whole thing. And then with, with Michael Caine in the background and his sunglasses, uh, ready ready for when she makes the, the move. And then the, the additional um, anxiety over the gang that's kind of chasing her and is kind of mad at her. Um, and I'm still not exactly sure why she pissed off that gang. Like, the, apparently she went and stood by them. And that was not the right thing to do. <laughs> like, they asked her why she came down there and, you know, was, was messing with their space or whatever. But, hey, I don't understand New York of 1980 either. I mean, maybe people got that. But, yeah, I don't think there's a bad scene. Uh, and there are several scenes that, are, yeah, I would call great. So I think this totally passes. Now, however, as time goes on, um, who do you think the audience for this movie will be or won't be, I guess, depending? Like, who would you recommend this to? And who do you think will watch this movie going forward? Because movies have changed, and this is a product of its era back when you could still make a $6 million thriller and have it be a hit in the theaters. Yeah, but they don't really make erotic thrillers these days. I guess they do, but they're really bad. So if like they anyone... after Sharon Stone, right? Like, that was yeah. kind of the last time they did that. Like, if you like Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, movies like that, I would recommend it. But I mean... There, I mean, obviously, anyone who likes Brian De Palma, anyone who likes Hitchcock, anyone who likes Jallo, anyone who likes horror films, anyone who likes Nancy Allen. You know, she was fantastic in Robocop, and she was in Blowout. She was, um, she was in Carrie. She was in Carrie. Yeah, she was in Out of Sight, by the way. Um, was she? Who was she in Out of Sight? She played a small character in Out of Sight, but yeah, she was in Out of Sight. Oh, okay. Um, I... I love this movie. I think it's just a guilty pleasure, uh, although it's a really good movie. Uh, like it does have problems, but I would recommend it to just about everyone. Like, like I, I think, I think that I think the thing about this movie, like, okay, so when I'm gonna play the clips from the podcast from like seven years ago, Simon was the one who liked the movie the least, but he still enjoyed the movie. Like, he still found it entertaining. So, although he can nitpick about, say, like the portrayal of transsexuals and or the performance by Michael Caine. And or just the plot hole with the police officer. Overall, he still, we all still enjoyed the movie. So I think it's just one of those movies that's a really fun watch. So I think you can recommend it to just about everybody. It can be dated, like the blood, for example. It doesn't really look real. You know, there's a few scenes here and there where the character interactions, reactions, chemistry, motivations don't really make sense. But overall, it's still just a fun movie that's a product of its time. And I love to watch these movies that take place in the big city, like in the early 80s or late 70s. Um, because like you see like this glimpse of a city that no longer looks the same. Yeah, or at least in movies it doesn't. 
Yeah, I, I they 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 definitely don't paint New York over with a with a romanticized brush, you know, which can happen in so many movies nowadays. Yeah, I think this is a movie that anybody can get into, can get sucked into. They just have to have the capacity to sort of um, suspend disbelief, which you know, obviously, all movies require you to do. But some movies more than others, there's going to be some goofy things in here that aren't realistic. De Palma is a stylized filmmaker. He doesn't always make he doesn't usually make realistic what I would call realistic movies. Um, so you just have to be willing to decide to kind of roll with the fact that the, the the detective is making the call girl do all like that he's threatening her with jail unless she does his investigation for him. <laughs> like stuff like that. And some of his dialogue is just outrageous. Uh, so stuff like that is, I think, will we'll make modern audiences wince a little bit. But if they can roll with it, I think they will absolutely get sucked into the drama and the tension of this movie. I think it's hard not to, just because De Palma's visuals are going to be well and above what so many modern audiences have seen lately. Uh, they just nobody's nobody's making movies with style that kind of, or I should say nobody, but very few directors are making movies with style anymore. And um, I think that that will absolutely wow them. Just just his directing. And it's crazy because nowadays with technology, you can have like a drone, you know, you attach a camera to a drone and you do the most incredible tracking shot, right? But in Mm -hmm. this movie, when they follow Angie Dickinson through the museum and they had their sort of like steady cam, like the camera would constantly go out of focus because she would have to stand within a certain distance of the camera. So they gave her a rope. With the rope, she was able to know how far she could move from the camera so it would not go out of focus. Like, so... For him to make this sort of movie back in 1980 and to have these complicated sequences, like these complex shots, it's not as easy as it is to do in 2020. So it's a great movie for anyone who's who wants to try making movies, an aspiring filmmaker, if you're a film student, if you want to be a cinematographer. Yeah, and I think like stuff like that that any aspiring filmmaker should take note of is that this was very difficult back then. It shows, a guy, shows people who understood their craft. But it also tells you that this was – because it was so difficult, it tells you that it was important to them that they actually get this right. And these shots, as we discussed before, are important to the narrative. They do drive the narrative forward. Um, so think about that when you're when you're making your movie shots instead of just what simply looks cool. Because De Palma has been accused of that many times of just trying to make things look cool. I don't believe that he's done that. Um, I think he actually does think about it quite a bit. And I think that it would help be helpful for, for future filmmakers to get into that as well. And to see that everything doesn't have to look the same. And like I say, I'm not going like, to make a blanket statement and say that every filmmaker or no filmmakers have style. There clearly are some out there that have some style. But you don't see the flamboyant style very often anymore that De Palma puts on, you know, puts on here. Like this is a show, a cinematic show of techniques all just sort of, sort of thrown in, like you, like you said, you've got you've got stuff that rarely gets used anymore, like split screen, um, or even that split screen flashback kind of thing. Like these are techniques that that might seem dated, but they're not. They're, they're film techniques, and they could be used anytime with a, with a director who is imaginative to, enough to do them. Um, and unfortunately, right now, people aren't using a lot of techniques that 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 add flash or panache to to their movies anymore. 
I, I think I think it is a great movie. It's a great movie, and I want to put an emphasis on the movie part. Like, it's not a great story, <laughs> but it is a great movie. And I think that that audiences going forward, any any general audience, adult of course, uh, can because uh, this is you know <laughs> this is this one's definitely a hard R as far as thrillers go. Um, I think the idea. And, like, this is where it gets confusing when you talk about story versus script. Like, I think the idea of the story, and maybe that's the actual story, is a good one. The script is problematic. Like, I think the idea of having these, you know, a movie that's split in half following two female characters that are somewhat similar but yet completely opposite, and one of them dies halfway through the film. I mean, like, again, the template is very similar to Hitchcock's Psycho. Psycho. But... It's interesting how in a movie like Psycho and Scream, like they do choose to kill off, and in Dress to Kill, they they do choose to kill off the actress who gets top billing. But why is it that the first actress, despite the fact that she has less screen time, is always the better performer? Because as much as I like Nancy Allen, the performance by Angie Dickinson is is incredible. Like, and so when you look at Janet Lee in Psycho, and when you look at Drew Barrymore in Scream, like. As soon as Drew Barrymore dies and scream, like the movie can never top that opening sequence. It's not just because of the way it's filmed and Wes Craven's direction. It's also because of her performance. And so the weird thing about Dress to Kill is like maybe that's why people were hard on Nancy Allen because it never does get better. But I still think she's great. Yeah, it never does get better. But it, it, I, I, again, I, I think she's she's playing a different character, and maybe people are also disappointed that Nancy Allen's character gets killed, just like Janet Lee in Psycho. Like you're supposed to love that character, and you're not supposed to care as much about Vera Miles or whoever that guy is. I can't remember his name in that movie. Like the name of the actor, I mean. Um, Sam, whoever plays Sam. Um, yeah, I, you're not supposed to care about them as much. It's Janet Lee that's supposed to leave the imprint on your mind because that imprint should uh, should determine how you look at the rest of the movie going forward, right? So she's supposed to be the stronger character, the stronger performer. And I think with Angie Dickinson, in Dress to Kill, I'm not sure that that's the case exactly. I don't think that you're supposed to see Angie Dickinson's murder in every single thing because it becomes kind of the Nancy Allen story after that. And, you know, the Nancy Allen Peter story they don't really like it's not about it's not like everything revolves around finding the murder of Nan, of, of uh, angie dickinson's character and you know everybody knew her you know and all that kind of stuff and everybody's getting involved uh it's not really about that it becomes a nancy allen story and you're right she's the stronger performer she's the veteran performer um nancy allen had been in a few movies but she was still relatively young at that point um but I, yeah, I, I'm still drawn to both characters. I just think they're very different. And I think people are disappointed because the richer character, perhaps, um, got killed. And then the, the one that came along wasn't quite, didn't quite have the depth. So, by the way, I think you're talking about John Gavin. Is that his name, John Gavin? Yeah, who Sam. went on to work alongside Ronald Reagan when Reagan was president. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I never, I never bothered looking him up. I always liked Vera Miles. I think she was, uh, you know, she's a great actress. She's not really like, she doesn't have a flashy role in Psycho, but she's a great actress. Uh, all right, we should probably wrap it up then. You're right, and uh, <laughs> that'll about do it for today. So you can, of course, find me, Patrick Murphy, um, online at Goombastomp. Dot com, uh, as well as I, I co-host the NXPress podcast with Rick and uh, Tim Mason, another one of our writers over there. And uh, yeah, you can, of course, tweet us on uh, on Twitter at Sorted Cinema. Rick, where can we find you online? 
You can find them over at Goombastomp.com and or SortedCinema.com. Uh, you can find the podcast just about everywhere from iTunes to Spotify to YouTube to Podbean to, of course, on the actual website. Uh, if you do like the show, give us a rating. And I think next week we will be back and we will talk about Top Gun. Yeah. Let's kick the fires and light the tires, guys. All right. We'll talk to you next week. You're just never in. I've been out myself running down that nosy bitch. I found out where she lives. So I'm just going to wait right here until she shows her face. And then I'm going to cut those spying eyes out. What were you calling me about anyway? It wouldn't be about that murder I read about in the papers. Hell of a way to lose a patient. But you shouldn't try to fuck him, Doc. Hi, Max. It's Liz. Uh, look, I wanna... Hey, you're listening to Sorted Cinema. I am Simon Howell. I'm content editor over at Sound On Sight. I'm joined by Mr. Ricky D. Hello. We're also joined by Mr. Edgar Chaput. Yes, hi guys. Uh, and for the first time on Sword of Cinema, as far as I remember, Mr. J- Mr. Uh, James Marola. Hello out there. That was a clip from Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. It was released the uh, in July of 1980, and uh, he'd already made, of course, uh, quite a few films by that point. This is sort of the sort of the smack dab in the middle of his career, or I guess early middle. At the um, and he was well known enough at the time that he was billed as the master of the macabre right there on the poster. So uh, obviously a bit of a commodity at the time. Uh, this star is Michael Caine as a psychologist who is uh, treating apparently the killer of uh, several women, or at least one woman anyway that we see. And uh, how, actually, I've already gone off the rails <laughs> in trying to summarize this film. Basically, it's Psycho in Manhattan, okay? Can we just, can we just do that? It's a lot simpler. Uh, Brian De Palma. I feel like it's been an interesting few years if for for Brian De Palma devotees because I feel like it's only in the last little while that pe- that the idea of taking him really really seriously is something that you don't just laugh at. And, and in fact, a, a couple mm-hmm. months ago there was a book published called Un American Psycho, which specifically uh, had had this very detailed auteurist reading. I haven't read the book, so I can't talk about specifically what the arguments are but it had a very spe- a very detailed a tourist reading and a very serious a tourist reading of brian de palma as this contrarian political filmmaker um so i mean do you buy that or do you think of him as just a very stylish ripoff artist james you you loved it tell me why uh well i mean speaking as far as uh people who criticize de palma and say that he was you know, ripping off hitchcock uh I, the way I look at it, 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 if you're a filmmaker and you're not, quote unquote, uh, ripping off Hitchcock or Fellini or Bergman, then maybe you're not a very good filmmaker. Uh, I, I, I mean, I noticed those those aspects of the film, but I didn't care because it was a good film and I liked the style of the film. And uh, I, I think the thing I like most about this film is the way and it's not completely uh, dissimilar to Don't Torture a Duckling in that we have kind of a dichotomy set up uh, in Don't Torture a Duckling. You have modern life and kind of the traditional uh, uh, life. In Dress to Kill, you have 
I would guess you would say dream fantasy world where, you know, in our minds, we are the perfect being and we are exactly what we want to be. And in reality, we're not that at all. And I, I think the Palma brilliantly sets that up in the opening sequence where you see Angie Dickinson in the shower and it is a totally obvious body double mm. being used for, I mean, there is no, Angie Dickinson was still a beautiful woman at this point. But she was like in her mid four, mid to late forties, I think, maybe even older. And you have this body of a woman that's got to be in like her early twenties. And I think the Palma does that on purpose because we're seeing this sequence through the eyes of Angie Dickens Dickinson's character. And in her mind, in her fantasy, she still has this perfect body that she had when she was younger. And if you'll notice, she's looking at her husband, who she has no love for, but she's looking at him with love in her eyes. And then it cuts to what her reality is, and it's very cumbersome, awkward, unfulfilling sex with her husband, with her clothes on. And, and I think that's what's so brilliant about this film. And that's kind of what the, the killer, in a very deranged way, struggles with is his fantasy of being a woman meeting the reality that he he can't be a woman. I was under the impression that it isn't Angie Dickinson's body because uh, she she simply uh, refused or was uncomfortable with that, so they got a body double. Now, maybe did they intentionally get a, a body double, uh, which was uh, obviously very much younger for some thematic residents? Perhaps it works. Uh, James, I like a lot what you, what you said in your little uh, introductory review. That was great stuff. Uh, so maybe that's true, but I, I have understood it as uh, they, they did that because the actress did not want to... Uh, actually participate you know fully nude with you know see a lot of shots of extremely private parts i don't know uh well and it's funny because i have a totally different reading of the shower scene um and it's partially because i think i like the movie less than all of you do uh i i I, we actually haven't heard edgar's opinion but i'm gonna let him talk soon enough what bugs me about the shower scene uh which is especially in contrast to the amazing sequence that immediately follows in the museum which is by far the high point of the film i think the vertical sequence yeah uh, uh there's hitchcock again um mm. the uh the, what bothers me about the shower sequence is i i i think your reading is is valid in some ways james but the framing is what bugs me the way that he focuses on this body doubles but supposed to be angie dickinson's perfect breasts and her fondling <laughs> her own perfect breasts and in soft focus with with the steam it's such a male fantasy or it's or it's or it struck me as such a specifically male fantasy that the idea that it's coming organically from Angie Dickinson's character as some expression of her character it it mm. it, it doesn't work for me uh, and I, I feel like it's a very uh, shallow interpretation of female sexuality. So you agree with the feminists that attacked him back when this movie was made in the 80s? <laughs> um, I don't think... Well, I think I think people were mostly angered by the... Um, Beaver shots? No. People... I think people who were legitimately annoyed with this film were annoyed with Michael Caine's character. Let's get to spoilers, because why not? Uh, so remember when I said this movie was psycho? This movie really, really is psycho uh, mm. because we have a very specifically transgendered killer. And first of all, I, I'm willing to bet there have been maybe 
three transgendered people in 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 history who have killed people but anyway for some reason they keep showing up in movies and um what's funny to me about it is i don't this isn't the main reason that i'm not a huge fan of dress to kill but i do feel like it's worth harping on what i find interesting is that it's actually more backwards and more uh sort of ill-conceived than psycho is in terms of how it depicts uh, sort of gender dysmorphia, if you want to put it that way, because at least with Psycho, you have the mo- you, know, you know Norman Bates has this shut-in relationship with his mother, and and that is really the main drive of it. Here, it's basically just, well, Michael Caine is confused about his sexuality, and so he kills people. You're just never in. I've been out myself running down that nosy bitch. I found out where she lives. So I'm just gonna wait right here until she shows her face. And then I'm gonna cut those spying eyes out. What were you calling me about anyway? It wouldn't be about that murder I read about in the papers. Hell of a way to lose a patient. I just shouldn't try to fuck him, Doc. Hi, Max. It's Liz. Uh, look, I wanna... Or she kills people. And that, <laughs> and and then we, we get this scene where we have a transgendered person on television explaining what it is to be transgendered and seems well-adjusted so that, it, like, it seems like, like such a, it's shoehorned in there to make you think that, no, Brian De Palma doesn't actually think that all transgender people are going to go out there and kill your girlfriends. But it feels very, very shoehorned in to me. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. That whole aspect of the movie really, really bugs me. Sorry, folks. Uh, well, but anyway, Edgar, uh, sorry, I had to rant for a bit, but we haven't heard your That's overall fine. opinion of the That's film fine. yet. Oh, sometimes you gotta rant. You gotta let it out, man. Like, uh, can I, can I, 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 sorry, in Psycho, Anthony Perkins <laughs> simply was a crossdresser. He, yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you can make arguments for there being more going on in his head, but there's really, you have to really dig for that. Uh, okay, well, uh, I guess I'll take uh, the stage for a moment. Uh, you know, this this is a very interesting film. Uh, it's funny because uh, James, you provided a, a very very good description of the opening scene, uh, which yeah, I think is it's well, it's shot in an interesting fashion. Obviously, it's it's very uh, sexual. It's very uh, it's like a fantasy, but it also tells a story. Uh, because of much of what you said earlier, the body, uh, the, the, the body double, which is obviously very younger. It's like a sexual fantasy. And then a moment later, after the dream is over, uh, we see the reality uh, of, her, of her sexual life. And I find that this film, Dressed to Kill, is a series of incredibly uh, well-crafted sequences that each tell uh, their own stories. Uh, the first scene is about the Angie Dickinson character and how how poor her marriage is. There's a later scene at, at the museum in which she tries to be adventurous. Well, here's Angie Dickinson's character uh, trying to get some. Uh, there's a scene later in the film with, uh, shoot, Nancy Allen's character. She's trying to get home. She's being chased. And there are some very comical moments in there. And all those sequences... They sort of te- they're sort of stories unto themselves, as an in- as a film, as as a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I actually think it's maybe 
uh, a bit average. Uh, I don't think the film utilizes the Michael Caine character, who is, as, as we've revealed already, the, the, the killer, who is a transsexual or wants to be a transsexual. Honestly, I'm not even sure what phase in his psychological phase in his life he's in. Um, I'm not sure it works perfectly. I'm not sure it, it, it moves along so swimmingly as a complete story. Well, the, the ending makes sense because of the middle, because of the beginning. Uh, but hey, I love the individual moments, and Brian De Palma sure knows how to shoot the hell out of a good chase scene. So it, it's got that at least. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. It. I didn't love it though. To just to be clear, I don't hate the movie. I, I think it's it is aesthetically brilliant. I, and, it, and like I said, the 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 Vertigo sequence uh, is great, and obviously other sequences are dazzling. The uh, Angie Dickinson's actual death scene sequence really is uh, is quite something. But it's just, it's such an odious movie in terms of it's, it just feels so surface level, but also kind of ugly at the same time that I can't really, I can't really get behind it. And what I find interesting is that both it and William Friedkin's cruising were inspired by the same, were were inspired by the same article. And I've never seen cruising, but it's another movie that people really, really take, uh, take offense to. I I would have loved to have reviewed, reviewed them together. No, it's because what happened was Brian De Palma wrote a script for cruising based on the famous article, but he couldn't get the rights. And so he therefore took the ideas and he wrote dress to kill. He really wanted to make cruising, but William Friedkin walked away with the project. But, I mean, James, help me out here, because I don't know. I think Brian De Palma is a filmmaker who's always wrestling with some serious demons in his movies, like Hitchcock did. And I, I think, like, especially with a movie like Dress to Kill, he's obsessed with voyeurism, and you see it in movies like Sisters also. Like, I think that it's more than just style. Like, I mean, cinema is about creating an effect with image and sound, and Brian De Palma is a master of doing it. But I think there's more to it. Yeah, I agree. There, I'm not a big De Palma fan. A lot of his films uh, don't quite, I, I don't quite feel them. But as far as like a film like Dress to Kill, and and like a film like Carrie as well, his films they're not just uh, visual like flash and bang. Like a lot of people will kind of criticize him for, or say, well, all of his films are just visuals, and there's really nothing else there. There is always something else there with De Palma, and it, and I kind of agree with Simon, but I, I almost agree with him as far as like the the way he handles some of the themes in, in his film. It, I I agree that he can be clumsy at times, like the the opening shower scene is very male dom- dominated, and and it, it is more of a male perspective, and it is kind of clumsy, but overall the film. It just has like this dirtiness to it. There, you could feel that there is like this deep-rooted sexual struggle in in the film, and and that's the impression I get a lot of times from De Palma. And that's one of the things that I, I like about the few films of his that I like. Well, we when we haven't even mentioned that the movie stars his wife, which is, it, seems kind of important in this context. His then wife, yeah, and his muse. Yes, Nancy Allen. Yeah, who plays the prostitute? Uh, of course, she would only be in, in in her greatest achievement after she divorced De Palma, 
by which I mean <laughs> RoboCop, of course. I thought she was okay. Yeah? Not that she's not given uh, the most uh, profound role in the world to deal with, but I thought she had had a little bit of spunk to her. Uh, she was kind of funny at times. Uh, if I can maybe just touch on a little, a little something. Uh, you all mentioned that De Palma is somewhat clumsy uh, with the handling of the themes. Just to touch on a, a scene that, that you, Simon, mentioned earlier when the Michael Michael Kine character is watching um, an interview uh, with a transvestite who, who did cross over into the other, physically crossed over into the other sex. I actually, I actually really liked that scene, uh, not because it... Uh, how should I say? Not because it reassured me that, that Brian De Palma really doesn't have such a poor opinion of transsexuals, but because it reinforced something that is mentioned at another point in the film that uh, the Michael Caine character is, he, he, his brain is obviously completely fucked because he, he is wrestling with, do, can I become a woman? And then the other half of him uh, does not let him become a woman. So he's sort of watching this interview as, well, that's that's the possibility. That's what's reachable. And yet there's this other half of him which prevents him from doing that. And in preventing him from doing that, he goes on this killing spree. So I actually thought that scene was, I actually thought it was kind of important. To, yeah, but uh, it's absolutely important, but it's also, it just feels so psychologically pat and reductive. Really? I don't. Uh, this is not how people work. Maybe, but I, I like think. the fact that every single character in this movie, at least that gets killed off or is the killer, is sexually frustrated, except for the hero who happens to be a prostitute. <laughs> and not just a prostitute, but I think she's a pretty kick-ass, cool prostitute. Like, she's an, un- <laughs> she's an unapologetic, glorified prostitute with a good sense of humor, and she's actually pretty smart. And uh, I don't know, I would hang out with this chick. She's pretty cool. She's tough. And I really liked uh, Nancy Allen in this movie a lot. Um, I, actually, my favorite thing about her character is that she plays the stock market. And, and actually, when the movie opens, the first thing you hear her talk about is how uh, a friend of hers gave her a stock tip. And then after after she goes through this horrific scene where she watches uh, someone get murdered, she later still follows up on that stock tip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a weird scene because it's a, it's a split screen and the audio is is working for both of those scenes. I, I get why you enjoyed it, and it is kind of cool. It's kind of funny. Other calling back to that little moment when she she mentioned the, her friend's stock tip, but I find the audio on that is very very distracting. That scene doesn't work mostly for the technicalities. It's a very bizarre scene, I find. The one thing I don't like about that opening half hour with Angie Dickinson, and I think De Palma thinks it's really really clever, is after she has this sort of one night stand or cab ride and one night stand with this guy she sees in a museum she goes into his desk and finds um a doctor's report i guess or a doctor's letter right, uh, stating right. that he has syphilis and now <laughs> she probably has syphilis and it's supposed to tie into the themes of uh sex and violence and you know so fear of sex and the fears that sex bring but it's too much i mean the the thing is sex and intimacy are already intense and scary things. You don't need to add, you know, you don't need to add the fear of venereal disease or this internal horror to make that work. It's too much. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there, Simon. Uh, And that goes back to my point is a lot of times uh, De Palma will be kind of clumsy with his ideas. Uh, I, 
I think it, it was great. It's kind of like a high point for her character right before she gets murdered that she has this one night stand and she's seemingly freed of her sort of, at least for the moment, freed of her uh, sexual inhibitions and her, uh, I guess, worries with her marriage and whatnot, despite the fact that she just cheated on her husband. But then he brings it right back down with that reveal. And I, I thought that leading up to the murder, I, I thought that was a bit too much. I, I think it would have been better to keep her kind of on the emotional high before she got murdered. I don't know, Rick, any thoughts about this? No, I mean, I'm in agreement. I mean, look, I think uh, De Palma is a better technician than he is a storyteller. I'm not the biggest De Palma fan either. I like his early films. I love Sisters, Carrie, and Dress to Kill. I think this is a fantastic film, but I view Dress to Kill as an 80s slasher film. And I also posted a list on the website for, uh, it was a list of the best slasher films uh, before 1990. It went up to 1990. And Dress to Kill, I believe, is on the top 10. And I do think it's a it's a fantastic film. I mean, even like the murder sequence in the elevator, the way it's shot, I freaking love it. Well, I, I, I feel like he wanted, I feel like it's a lot simpler. He wanted a transgendered killer because it was a logical extension of Psycho. And I, I can't mm. stress enough how much this movie is Psycho. I mean, obviously it has a vertigo sequence, but not just the Marco Kidder dying three, 30 minutes in thing, but also the way that Psycho has this studio mandated last scene where we get an explicit explanation of this of the killer's <laughs> psychological state of mind, and we and that yeah. is also exactly it's not I don't I don't remember if it's exa- if it's quite it's not quite the last scene, but we get an ex- a very very similar scene at the end of uh, Dress to Kill. 